Welcome to the Thrive at 20 podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years of Thrive Partnership Group by sitting down with leaders who have helped shape the legacy of the organization. Here's founder Rob Sagan in conversation with one of those leaders today. Hello, Thrive at 20 podcast listeners. We're very excited to be joined by Warner Biddle, Warner Senior Vice President and Global Head of Commercial at Kite Pharma. That's a big title, Warner. Hey, Rob, how are you doing? Yeah, doing great. Um, you um, have a bit of break in the action with the Toronto Blue Jays so you can record some podcasts for a little while. <laughs> well, you know, I, I say we use hockey as a way to kill time between baseball seasons. That's very un-Canadian of me, but that's just the way it goes. <laughs> yeah, I think you might have that backwards, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> or for a Saskatchewan boy, you use uh, baseball to kill time between curling seasons. Wouldn't that be more accurate for guys you grew we, up with? We, we love our curling, that's for sure. <laughs> we love our curling. And hockey, and hockey. That's right. On the Lonely Prairie. Well, look at you now. Uh, I love that title because it just says, it almost sounds like King of the Universe at Kite. But um, I, I know you've had now, what, this is your third fiscal year coming up? Yeah, I've been here about three years, yeah. Yeah. You know, I was uh, thinking of a mutual friend of ours, uh, Mel Engel, who said to me one time when he was mentoring me in California, there's three phases to a job, especially in leadership roles. First phase, you're really just trying to get your arms around the opportunity. You're trying to get to know your people, the business, the lay of the land, the politics, you know, the key drivers, all that stuff. And for some people, that phase can take almost a full fiscal year, but usually it gets shorter as we get more experienced. And then the second phase... He calls it sort of you make your mark phase, you know, where you you get a pretty good handle on things and hopefully what they hired you for comes to fruition. And then phase three, you start to look for opportunities to expand your scope and look for ways to add value beyond, you know, the defined role. Where, where would you say you are on the journey? Are you now moving into phase three where your attention is starting to get shared not only strictly on the commercial, but outside of commercial? Well, I mean, honestly, it's a bit of a journey, um, Rob, and I'd say, to be honest, I mean, this space that we're operating in, um, CAR-T therapy, cell therapy is still relatively new. And um, I think we've done some fantastic things over the last few years to really propel Kite into a leadership position here. But I wouldn't say my work on the commercial side is done. In fact, I think the more we try to get our hands around it, the more we realize how much more there is to continue to develop here. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the key with all of it is, is, is these are big game changing, um, um, challenges, I guess, if you will, for, um, you know, introducing a, a completely new therapy into, in, into the pharmaceutical space. And, um, you, you can't do that just from a commercial perspective alone. So, um, yes, there's lots to do on commercial, but I got to do it in partnership with, all of my peers and everyone from medical research, manufacturing, everyone, uh, um, development, we're, we're all in this together to um, try to uncap more opportunities because these have been really transformative therapies for patients, but we got to get them to more patients. And so that, that's what we're doing here. Yeah. And maybe you could just share with our listeners, and I'd probably benefit from a review of this too, the the magic, I mean, the leap forward that cell therapy really is because we can sort of take for granted that we all get lumped into the life science sector together. But this is extraordinary, as you and others have explained it to me. I remember coming back and bragging to my family that I get a chance to play a little bit in this space with you guys because the stories that you read 
on LinkedIn and social media, just extraordinary. So can you give us a little bit of that medical scientific breakdown from a layman's perspective? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, this is, you know, we've been talking about personalized medicine for, for years, but this is, this is truly personalized medicine. You're taking a patient's own um, T cells and extracting them through a process called apheresis and shipping those cells uh, to one of our manufacturing plants that we have, um, which is really a giant lab, if you will. And we've got three of them around the world and they uh, genetically re-engineer those, those T cells to identify and fight the patient's own cancer. And once, once that re-engineering process is done, we ship them back um, to the patient, uh, re-infuse them. And then the, um, then the cells fight, fight, fight their cancer. In this, in our case, it's, uh, a lot of lymphomas like, uh, large B cell lymphomas, um, um, and others as well, and some leukemias. But, um, to your point that you, you raised, these are really truly transformative therapies and not just because they're so different in terms of how they get administered and how involved the patient is and, and the complicated logistics in terms of what that means, but in terms of the outcomes that they actually can deliver for patients, it's truly what's really remarkable. We're we're talking about um, the opportunity to take um, in, in third line large B cell lymphoma, for example, patients that would you know have an average life expectancy of around six six years uh, or six months rather. And, and now we're um, we just published our five year data with forty three percent, almost half of patients alive after five years. So wow truly transformative data, truly transformative therapies, but they are completely new. And um, to the point I was uh, kind of highlighting at the beginning of the conversation, it's really taking a whole team effort for, for us to work through multiple stakeholders to, 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 to make it simpler and to build up the logistical platforms in all the different markets we are around the world so that we can get these, get these therapies to patients. But it's a lot of fun. It's really exciting. And we're kind of um, you know, building the train tracks as we're driving this train down it, but it's yeah. been, been very, very motivating for me to be a part of it and really fortunate to, to be on this ride. Well, and you've always been the kind of person that you're at your best when you've got multiple challenges and a steep hill to climb. And a couple of our other guests have commented on the same thing. So I know that's your nature too. You, you must've been so happy to get on this train as it went up that steep hill. I, I really want to lean in to a couple places. One is, Let's take it from a patient journey perspective and maybe contrast for me and our listeners. What would the difference be between, let's say, a, a, a B-cell patient before kite cart therapy was available and now that it is available, what would their, how, how would their experience be different, you know, sort of on a day-to-day basis? Well, I mean, at least initially, a lot of patients will get diagnosed in in, in a community oncology setting, um, some of course will get referred fairly quickly to a, to a larger academic institution, but a lot of them are, are, are being, you know, um, diagnosed and first initial rounds of therapy are being administered in the community. Um, and, and we've progressed a lot over the last 20 years. I mean, my old company, um, Genentech was a part of this. We, you know, our chop and, and, and now, and now some of the newer combinations, are actually um, curative for patients with LBCL in about um, 50, 55, 60% of the time. But there's about half of patients, 40%, half of patients that will relapse. And some will relapse really, really quickly. 
and, and with those, the prognosis can be can can be can be horrible. Um, so it, it's then where there's needs to be a really quick decision that uh, a lot of times, um, you know, it's part of the education process, but getting the uh, community physicians to recognize that these patients won't um, won't necessarily be good candidates for another round of chemotherapy or won't necessarily be great candidates for stem cell therapy, for example, and need to be referred to an academic center where we're largely administering these therapies for now. I mean, in the future, we're looking to progress this and get this out to more centers uh, and closer to patients. But for now, patients need to um, get assessed to see whether cell therapy or, or CAR-T therapy is right for them. And that means they got to make a, a journey, like in the case of if you're somewhere in, in Ontario, you've got to get to Toronto or get to uh, Hamilton or get to London in order to make that happen. But there you can get assessed. Um, and um, if you're right for the therapy, um, like I said, the, 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 they'll go through some steps in terms of preparation, but then the, the patient will um, uh, have an apheresis session where they're uh, T cells are extracted. The cells are shipped to one of our manufacturing uh, facilities, and that takes, uh, you know, in, in the manufacturing process and 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 QA process takes about sixteen days to return that back to the patient, and then the patient can be um, prepared to receive the CAR T therapy. There's a number of steps that have to be done in order to uh, prepare them, but then once they do, they're the patients are infused the therapy, and um, um, and then it's. Uh, it's post-care therapy and, and you're managing that patient and tracking the patient, looking for results, also managing any side effects that are there, of course. Um, but that whole process, you know, is a bit of a commitment and requires patients to be involved with their caregiver. It really requires a really strong handoff between the community and between the academic centers. Um, but I think we've now done this now in over 16,000 patients here, here at Kite. Um, and it's, it's really, um, taken off, if you will, from where it was five years ago when we were treating the first few hundred patients and thinking, hey, is this going to be viable? Can we actually scale this up and get this to more than just a handful of patients? And we've clearly done that uh, and clearly developed the manufacturing capabilities in order to do that consistently. Um, but again, I, I I keep coming back to the fact that so many patients can benefit from it, but um, only some that, that that are that are eligible right now are really getting access. So really, I mean, what keeps me up at night or what wakes me up in the morning and gets our team fired up is how do we continue to expand that access and continue to uh, help identify patients earlier, help them streamline their journey so they can get access and and and, and get the consult earlier so they can um, ultimately get 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 this therapy that could be transformative or potentially curative for them. So your target patients that are the right profile. Uh, it sounds like all or most of them would have gone through rounds of first-line treatment like chemotherapy, correct? Yes, um, in pretty much every disease indication we're in. But yeah, in particular, we're talking about LBCL right now because that's kind of one of our major and, and, and largest indications. But but a lot of them have first-line. Some of them have gone through second-line as well. Uh, we initially started with a third-line plus indication. Um, but over the last um, year and a half here in the U.S., and now we're uh, getting positive results in Canada, um, we, we've actually been able to move um, Yescarta into second line, um, a second line position for LBCL, which is fantastic. It means you can administer these patients, uh, administer the therapy to patients earlier in their journey. Um, and, it, and it's still relatively early days, but it looks like the outcomes for patients are are even better than if the therapies are being administered later. Uh, yeah, so it's, 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 yeah. Uh, it's, very, it's very encouraging for us, which is actually prompting us to do additional clinical trials to see whether we can 
even do better by getting this into first line with patients. And so we're just following the science and following the journey right now, but it's clearly pointing that, like I said, these therapies can be transformative and curative, but the earlier that the patients can get access and the quicker that we can turn um, these therapies around and get them to the patients, the better the outcomes can be for them. Yeah. And, you know, all families, I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast have indirect or direct experience with patients going through this kind of oncology treatment. And it's just remarkable to me to think that if in most cases, at least now, and probably for the foreseeable future, they've gone through at least a first line chemo treatment, which is extraordinarily difficult. I mean, I'm sure it's improved. Tolerance has improved over the years, but you know, it's intrusive getting to treatment centers can be difficult, particularly if you're not in a major urban center. So like a close friend of mine and client, uh, had to go down to Princess Margaret from Caledon. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's an hour and a half of Toronto traffic. It's like LA. It's difficult. And you're down there several times and you go through very intrusive therapy and hope that you're co- from your cohort, you're a survivor. And luckily, you know, he was. And, but, you know, just thinking about that journey and that experience. And then if a, a patient like Kim was to relapse and be told, Hey, we really think you're a great candidate for CAR T. Now, what does his day to day like, Warner? What 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 does he have to go through after you extract the T cells? Uh, the 16 days has passed, and is it an infusion that happens in the in the typically in the treatment center, like the teaching hospitals and major treatment centers? Is it an infusion yeah. that he has to sit through several times a week, or how does it work? No, no, and that's something actually what you're drawing out is something critically important that I should have stressed right off, right at the top. Um, these are one-time therapies. Wow. So you, this is one of the major benefits. Yes. There's a, um, um, there's a factor of, again, getting the patient, um, to the, um, uh, to the treatment center, getting them assessed, getting the apheresis, getting the few cells infused. But once they're infused in the, at the end of that 16 day process, actually the infusion process is, takes 15 minutes. So they're not sitting there for much longer. Um, they have to be monitored, of course, for um, potential side effects and adverse events, and they need to be tracked um, closely. But um, after about, you know, another 14 days, 21 days, a lot of patients can return back to um, um, the community, return back to, uh, of course, under cl- clinical supervision, but return back to some semblance of normal life. And they don't have to go back for another treatment. So, I mean, the key message here is that these are one and done treatments. Um, which again, is kind of an interesting uh, paradigm shift in oncology where a lot of therapies, as you know, are you're treating for multiple cycles of therapy and you a lot of times treating to progression in many cases. Um, and patients are on therapy and in and out of institutions and hospitals and have a port in their, uh, you know, in their chest for, for years to come. And they're yeah. always reminded about their, reminded about their disease. So, um, this is again, one of the transformative, um, things of CAR T therapy is that they are one and done. And it gives a patient a chance to, um, again, if they're successful and many, many are not all, but many are, um, get their lives back. And, um, it's, um, it's incredible. I I mean, we do this at kite, which is, um, I mean, a lot of companies talk about patients and stuff, but we don't, we don't start, um, 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 a sales meeting or a a town hall meeting or a, a, a company gathering without, a patient story and a lot of times they're on video, but sometimes we have them live as well. Wow. And these are patients that are 
truly grateful that the, the, the impact that they talk about on their lives and the fact that they were able, you know, at this point in, in, in their cancer journey to be able to find cell cell therapy at the time that they did and be involved either through the clinical trial and now commercially, like we're administering them. And like I say, get, get, get a chance of getting their lives back. The, um, the, the, the passion that they um, exude and the, excitement that they have and the gratefulness that they exude is, is really remarkable. And it's really motivating for all of us because we, we know that what we're doing is really, really special. Yeah. And it's no surprise to me yet now that I understand it better, uh, as you describe it, why, when we spend time with your employees, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes where on an annual basis, you've been really committed to making sure you not only understand the, understand the patient journey, but the experiences of your employees globally. And I want to talk to you about the insights you've gained from that. But one insight that we see as your partner is um, one, one of the questions in the annual survey asked people to identify their top 10 personal values at that, that moment mm. in time in their life. And yeah. it's, it's always surprising. Well, not surprising, but it's always interesting to Dr. Jameson and I who worked together on this, how much that compassion, other orientation, um, goes right to the top of the list for the folks that have been recruited to kite. So this is how they're wired. And, and now I get it even more than I ever got it before that how important being able to hear and see those patient testimonies can be. It must really, for folks who are naturally wired that way, it must really fill their tank every time they get a chance to be in the presence of a, a patient who can describe, you know, the benefits they're receiving, not just medically, but just the, and that's why I wanted to dig into it, just the difference in their experience, if, especially when most of the patients right now, and maybe that'll change in the future, but for now, the vast majority of patients who are benefiting from Iscarda, from, from Kite, have had such a, not a horrible, but a, a, you know, just, you know, you see it depicted in movies. We've all had family members and friends who told us what it was like to sit there and have the community oncologist or academic oncologists say, well, you have cancer. And then, you know, it's just, it just takes over your brain. I remember my dad talking about that when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer that my, my mom had to take notes because he couldn't hear anything. He just, his mind raced everywhere. Mm. And then all the treatment that goes, you go through depending on the severity, of course, but for people who are in this space, they've been through hell and back. Like it's not been easy and it's not just the medic medicine and the science it's the it's the uh invasion of their their lives how they're turned upside down and mostly in a negative way right there's some yeah. silver linings that many people talk about my dad talked about how much closer we got to certain people friends and family but by and large it's really tough and then it's all consuming this, it's all oh, consuming is what you're saying yeah yeah which i but, agree yeah but but you know i can just imagine for some of the people that I know that have been through this before CAR T was available, and you know, if they relapse, and then to sit down with their oncologists and their healthcare practitioners, the, the team that's looking after the care, and say, "Look, we think you're a great candidate for this. Here's what it involves. Here's what the benefits could be." I'm sure they sometimes look at their doctors like, "Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Like this almost sounds impossible." Because uh, I just been through hell and I'm back and here I am being told I relapsed and I can do what I can come in once and you can take 
T-cells for me and ship it off to some company. And then they're going to personalize my medicine, turn around in a few weeks. I'm going to sit here for 15 minutes. You're going to monitor me. And then do they go home pretty much right away, Warner? Or do they have to stick around as an inpatient for a while? A lot of them have to stick around for inpatient while. I mean, you talk about your dad and, and pancreatic cancer. We're, we're not in, in the, the space hasn't moved yet into the solid tumors, but obviously that's a, that's a horrific disease. And, and, and we're looking at, at that one and as well as many others um, as sort of a second wave of how we can transform and take these therapies to target solid tumors are well, which are inherently a lot more complex um, because of the microtumor environments and the, the, the forms of resistance they have around the tumors. It just makes the um, accessibility of CAR-T and effects that they can have on these patients a lot more challenging. But there's a number of companies, including ourselves, that are working on this. So again, I'm excited about not just now, but I'm excited about the future that we can bring this beyond lymphomas and leukemias to, to, to other patients as well. Yeah, but again, I know I'm oversimplifying it, but I'm Listen, most of our listeners are probably hanging around the life science industry. There's quite a few that don't, though. And I'll often get texts and questions that they're looking for more information on a topic that we may have discussed with someone from life science. And everybody's families are touched by cancer. In fact, a lot of people are touched by it. But again, I don't, I don't think that uh, at, at sort of a simple blush like we're doing right now, it can be overstated how much the patient must look at their treatment team and go, this is now available. I, I can get somewhat customized uh, medical scientific care with my own T cells. Mm -hmm. And I know I have to go through all of the process, but I've been through a process. Believe me, like if I'm a patient, I've got For that sure. scar, scar tissue. And you're telling me, let's say it's a few, few weeks, several weeks where I have to be monitored and tested and whatnot. But then, a few weeks later, if everything goes well, I could be back home. And within a month or two, I could be resuming life without the continued intrusion of more treatments down at the you know oncology center. And with, of course, lots of monitoring. But boy, the, I can just imagine the reaction of the patient and their families to you know, when they get back in their car and they're driving out of the parking lot, what it must feel like to have had that conversation and the hope it must give people. Um, it's it's extraordinary. I I think you're right. I think it is it is hope. And um and when people are in this situation, I think that's that's one of the most critical things that 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 they need to hear and have 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 options around. And and I mean I think a lot of patients probably had the reaction that, that you were just talking about. Is this is this real? Because five years ago or you know, six years ago. It wasn't. It wasn't available, and it, people thought it was a bit of science fiction, and, and there was a lot of skepticism to see whether, like I said, we could um, scale this and bring this to enough patients to where it would really matter. And second, would it would it have the longer term positive impacts like we're starting to see bear out in the science and the data right yeah. now? And I think both those things are coming to fruition now, which I think is again spurring a lot more research, a lot more interest in the space. And um, a lot of excitement by, you know, Kai, our company, as well as others to continue investing, not just in the research for the next generation products, but also, like I said, in expanding access so we can, we can bring this to more patients. And I, I remember when you um, let me know that you were going to take on this opportunity at Kite. I don't know if I've ever seen you so excited. I mean, you've always had 
so much fun in your career. And we'll talk a little bit about that journey in a minute. But I remember just you being able to articulate to my layman's understanding that you were really looking forward to the promise of the therapy, but also the unique challenges that the delivery system does create for any company that, that invests in this area and wants to bring this benefit to society. It's mm. uh, it's a steep hill, right? Because it seems to me there's a couple things that are pretty self-evident. One is the way you describe the, that the treatment gets to the patient through that process. That puts enormous pressure on the clinics, on everybody in the delivery system, but in particular on your operations, your lab, your, your, you know, that piece is, is an unusual burden and responsibility you guys take on because other therapies in this space don't have that. They're either delivering in a pretty standard methodology, an infusion of um, uh, an oncology therapy or a tablet or other modalities that are become fairly standard. And there's a, there's a process that's well known and it's defined. It fits into the current system. Yeah, that must have been one of the biggest challenges as you guys were getting regulatory approval is beyond the clinical trials, which are a controlled environment in the real world. We have to set up our facilities such that a patient can have their T cells shipped to a location. All that yeah. has to happen to that then has to get back to another back to that hospital. And now you've got it down to 16 days. <laughs> and I just I just can't imagine how much of since that was so unusual. Uh, the pioneering effort that must have gone into that and continues to go into that must be one of the biggest challenges that you and your colleagues face. Is that, is that not true? Oh, for sure. And, you know, I mean, I think that's where, you know, other companies that are um, getting into this space as well are, are, are realizing that to your point, just getting the initial clinical trials done is one thing um, and, and a fantastic achievement, but getting it to a point where you can treat consistently, you know, thousands of patients in a year is what we're doing here at Kite. Um, we've got a manufacturing success rate of over 96%. Like I said, we've got the fastest turnaround time of around 16 days. No one else is even close on, on, on those statistics. And the, the success rate and the turnaround time are really important because if you have to go back and remake the cells or if it takes longer for the manufacturing process um, to, to, to take place, then the patient can go downhill um, fairly quickly and, and and may not be even ready to receive their treatment once it's completed. So the, the, the challenge of getting it done, getting it done quickly, get it done consistently, and then scaling it up so you can do this for thousands of patients is a real logistical challenge. And I'll, I think I, I might have said this to you at one point, but I probably have interacted more with my manufacturing and tech ops, tech ops, tech ops colleagues at kite in the first three months of my, uh, of my job there than I had in my previous 25 plus years in the industry. Um, you took manufacturing almost as a given until it, until it wasn't working. And the large part of that was because in every other instance, to your point, whether it's a, an oral medication or, um, or a biologic and infusion, you can store inventory for this product. So you don't, yeah you can have it off the shelf and it's sitting there waiting. Um, and, and yes, there's logistical and manufacturing challenges with all these products. I don't want to, I don't want to downplay that. And we've made incredible advances as an industry in order to get us to, to get us to this point where I think a lot of companies can do that now very consistently and with a, with, um, with a high grade of, of capabilities, but, but this is a completely new way of doing it. And to your point, you've got the, the logistical challenge of making sure you, 
you track that patient cells and you have the chain of custody right from um, when they're extracted to the back to the manufacturing plant, through the manufacturing plant, back to the patient, um, and and making sure that they're um, they're controlled and that the cells arrive in a condition that they can actually be infused and then be effective um, is a huge um, is a huge accomplishment. And I'm amazed every day when I interact with my manufacturing colleagues about not only the technical expertise, but how much passion they also share for this, because um, I didn't tell you about this before, but we've, you know, obviously toured our manufacturing plants and we've got one in El Segundo here, just, um, just south of the office here in LA and one over in Maryland and one over in Amsterdam. And you tour one of these plants and um, they're just incredible high-tech facilities, as you can imagine. But in addition to the technology that's there, everyone working there you can just feel their passion because you see the cells coming in you know when a new patient is coming in and people know it's a patient um there's a saying on on, on the walls that says we're holding patients lives in in, in our hands and um, it's so true because they they have to um bring the cells into the in, into the plant register them get them into the computer system etc and get them sort of ready for processing and then there's that whole 16 day thing that happens and then at the end of that journey they're put into these little they're called doers, but there are these temperature controlled eggs. They almost look like our little mini R2D2s uh, from Star Wars kind of things. Wow. Um, and these are the things that are shipping out to patients and, and everybody in the plant knows when these, these shipments are going out. So there's this real connection to the patient because they know every, they know every bag that they're holding is someone's lives. And, yeah. you know, interestingly enough, they also know, um, they told us when we were touring um, in Maryland, there they one of the comments I still still remember is one of the um, people working um, on the shipping dock also said, we also know when those doers don't ship, when in the case they don't make it. And we know something happened, either the patient deteriorated or, or something else happened where the patient wasn't able to receive the cells. And everybody knows that back in the manufacturing plant. So there's that sense of, how could we have done better and how could we improve this better? How, what could we have done more? So I think all pharmaceutical people that work in this industry and you did as well, we all are think attracted to the, 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 the real opportunity here to have an impact on patients' lives. And I think all of us are doing that in, in different ways, but I have never worked in a environment like this before where it's so tangible and it's in your face and everybody in the company knows it and realizes it. And there's that to your point that you were bringing up a few minutes ago, I think that can't help but infuse the culture in a certain way and, and attract people in a certain way that want to work in an organization that, that, that that's having this kind of direct impact on patients. Well, yeah. And it really brings up another issue I want to unpack a little bit with you. And that's when you attract people with that fervor, and that core value, which clearly shows up in your data every year. What comes with that is they bring a very high expectation of themselves and their colleagues to work every day hmm. because they, you know, they, they, it is personal. Like they probably, it's probably touched them in some way, either through direct or indirect family, first level, second level. They've heard enough of the patient's stories. They know that people's, people's, uh, future are in their hands uh, figuratively and in those shipping units, literally. So, uh, you know, that energy is just palpable. And I know you see it a lot in your travel, but we also see it in your data. And it must, 
it must, it well explains to me and Dr. Jameson every time we look uh, at the insights that we gather from that survey every year that it explains why when we asked for comments in that survey, we have never seen so many people give such thoughtful comments to, well, how can we do better? Like, you know, you usually get your 5% that will take time to write something down. And, you know, maybe some of those are just putting it in to check a box. Man, I'll tell you, when we get a survey back from Kite employees, they, they, I mean, I've had one, one I read was almost a full Excel page, very thoughtfully written. You know, and I, I'm sure you see that all the time. There's such an energy and a passion that I, I suppose it comes with a responsibility that I know you feel, and I'm sure every people leader at Kite feels is that the appetite for doing better does just never goes away. Like you cannot rest on your laurels. You're, you're, you're attracting the best of the best. They're going to push themselves. They're going to push each other. They're going to push management to continuously do better, to get rid of inefficiencies and bureaucracies and anything that keeps them from delivering the optimal value to the patient and to the healthcare team. Is that something you've seen firsthand Warner? And is it here a challenge like it's never been for you before? Yeah, I mean, I think some of those themes come through in any um, team that you're working on, like I say, in, in the pharmaceutical space. But I do think there's a sense of urgency here, yeah. maybe more than any other, any other area that I've worked in. And to your point, it, it's not just the belief in the mission and, 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 and the passion for what we're doing around patients. It comes through in the data. I think the other key thing is there's a real stark realization that we can't work in silos from a functional perspective and be successful in doing this. It's just impossible. Um, everyone um, in the organization, whether it's at the leadership team level my, and my peers, but right down to the the sales reps and the and the pods that they're working in in order to um, bring these therapies, educate, of course, but also bring these therapies to patients. There's a whole cross-functional team that's involved. Um, that involves everyone from um, medical affairs, development, quality assurance, um, technical operations, um, and, and, and logistics support, et cetera, uh, patient support. It's it's a highly cross-functional unit that in no way is somebody like throwing something over the fence and saying, hey, fix this. Everyone knows there's a, there's a time limit on this. We need to get these cells turned around and get back to the patient so that it can have a positive impact on them. And so everyone's all in, you know what I mean? And everyone yeah. demands that of everyone else. And so when there's someone for whatever reason, who's not all in that shows and people, um, people either want to bring them in or they say, Hey, we have to raise our, raise our game here. Um, and the other thing that you raise, which I think comes through in the data as well is they, they have a low tolerance. Everyone has a pretty low tolerance for, or bureaucracy. And, you know, I think a big goal of all of us in, in leadership positions is how do we simplify things for our teams so they can focus in on what's most important and clear the decks for them and, and provide them the, the resources, but also remove the clutter to make that happen. Nowhere is that more important probably than here. But I think that shows up in the data as well. Because if you look at an area where we continually have to work on improving is how do we continue to make this simpler, continue to, like I say, strip away the bureaucracy so the decisions can be made faster so we can um, help more patients faster. I think everyone shares that same sense of urgency around it. And I think 
that draws us together, but it keeps the bar high on how we evaluate ourselves versus this this culture that we want to be. And so well, and it, it keeps everybody moving forward. Yeah. And over the three years you've run the commercial team, you know, we've with you have witnessed an evolution of the culture and evolution of the folks who thrive in the unique environment that is kite. And I'm sure it's the same in your competitors offices that are investing or getting into the segment, right? It's a game changing environment. It's, it's not business as usual, you know, in other sectors, I would say life science, um, maybe there's a positive bias towards people who have that disposition to care about others and high standards and will push. But, you know, this takes that idea to a whole different level. In my view, you know, I think it ends up attracting the best of the best, but when you're leading the best of the best who bring all of that drive and professionalism and education and, and whatnot, it, it makes leadership tougher. It, it's like coaching. If you're coaching a sport, it's one thing to coach a bell curve of athletes in a sport, but when you are given the very best, or I, I have a friend that teaches at a high end uh, commute boys college at St. Andrews college in Aurora. And he used to say that, you know, when you've got parents who are investing this much in their child's education, uh, the stakes are higher. It's a different classroom than a public school. And I think there's some parallels here in those, to those two examples to what we see in your data, that if you take on a people leadership role at Kite, you got to understand you're leading thoroughbreds who want to run fast and hard every day and aren't going to tolerate, uh, you know, someone slowing down to a trot. <laughs> like it's, mm. you know, it's going to be, it's going to be uh, contentious. It's going to be, you know, it's not going to be tolerated. There's not going to be this sort of uh, complacency that's going to be. A, so that really makes the job of being an effective people leader at Kite probably one of the biggest challenges we witness in our travels. Do you see the same thing at the helm of the commercial organization, too, that some folks who would have maybe thrived somewhere else in the in the industry, maybe this is a higher bar. This is a higher standard, and they they don't make it or can't make it. Yeah, well, first of all, it's a it's it's a privilege um, to be in this position to be working with these people. And I mean, not just people on my team, but my peers and in the organization as a whole. I mean, it is palpable, and you've commented on it, but others as well about um, the, the kind of organization is, um, kind of people, this organization attracts, which is, which is fantastic, fantastic. So I think we're on a, on a great foundation, but, but to your point, you, you can't, um, you can't rely on that as the, um, as sort of the, the engine that will just perpetually keep moving. You've got to continue to invest in, um, your leadership and the leadership of your, of your leaders in, in terms of how they are coaching and bringing, um, bringing people through it because there's, this isn't easy. There's things that go wrong. There's difficult challenges. We, we, like I said, we don't get this therapy to as many patients as possible. And that means we're changing things, not just within our organization, but we're trying to change the, the healthcare environment itself, which is, you know, requires a lot of um, teamwork and collaboration and a lot of persistence. And um, I think you got to just, lean into it as a, as a leader, but also create the right environment where people feel challenged, but also pe people feel that they can um, make mistakes. People feel like they can 
move, you know, learn from those and move on that there's a, there's a foundation of trust and, and, and healthy debate that happens within the organization. so that, you know, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that regardless of the challenge, just because somebody might think, oh, that's a commercial challenge or that's a manufacturing challenge. Some of the best ideas might come from other parts of the organization. And unless you have that trust and healthy debate, um, and, and openness to be curious and, and, and understand and work with people that may have other answers and other ideas and solutions for this, we won't, we won't solve it. So, um, um, and we won't, we won't, we won't get better and we won't, we won't treat more patients. So I think there's a huge, um, huge bar, like you said, on, 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 on leadership. And like I said, I don't take it for granted. I don't think anybody, anybody in the organization does, frankly, but, but it's something that in amongst all the busyness, um, that we do in, in, in day-to-day work. I think what's great about, um, you know, working with you and your team and, and the work we do around the culture assessments and then some of the investments we make is, is taking a pause on that and reflecting on where we're doing that well, where we could do that better. Um, what are the elements of that leadership to your point that we need to continue to dial up and help coach and support people on so they can get the most out of their people and not take it for granted. Um, there's, um, there's a lot of great people here, but even great teams need, uh, to be invested in and supported and, 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 and developed. And I think, I think that's, you know, the conversations we've been having and we've been working through with our leadership team and cascading it down. I think that's what we've been doing here. Well, and it's one of the reasons why we take your leadership on culture so seriously at, in our firm at the Thrive Partnership Group, because when we look at all of the firms that we get to work with as case studies, as opportunities to add value, we also feel the burden of the responsibility to be at our best when we work with your team. And it's, it's, it's something we accept as part of that obligation, but also we feel it when we engage with the people that you get to be with every day. So we're just starting the journey now that will kick off the 2024 survey and it's starting to heat up as of Monday. We'll be uh, on lots of calls and inv- involved in a lot of conversations and Dr. Jameson and I and the whole team here, you know, we feel it. And one of the things that we see just as an outside partner is the, the, the stakes are high as you and I've discussed, right? So that makes it really important. The other thing that makes it really important is it's a global company. It's not uh, just in one little part of the world. You guys have now got a footprint that touches just about every citizen of the world and hopefully that continues to become the you know, full case but it's a global organization with thousands of employees now three major manufacturing facilities to support all of that so that that, that makes it a big deal and then the other thing that really sharpens our saw internally to be at our best is we see that where other organizations i hate to say it this way but it's it's probably the right way to say it they can get away with not really worrying about culture because the stakes aren't that high and you can be complacent and it's you know good enough, but not here. Everybody's drive and energy and motivation is so high. And then, you know, certainly we've seen in, in the data that you and I and the team have had a chance to draw on that there is a huge impact on performance when the culture and the work environment matches up to what your employees feel will sort of free up their discretionary effort. You know, you and I've talked about this, that when you see a leader who had, let me inherited a team that with a mediocre culture score, and then a year, year and a half later, they've done all the right things to listen to the employees, 
to eliminate the bureaucracy that maybe they're always trying to optimize, really pay attention to the unique needs that that group has expressed in the survey. It's no surprise to us. Um, it's yet another reinforcement of it, but it's so it's it's so measurably powerful when we listen to the folks from the survey the next year and the comments that they make. It 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 really makes our like it makes our whole year. Dave and I look forward to getting those comments back because you can see the shift when you've had a leader who's paid attention, listened to the data, not been defensive, really tried to look for where how can I make it better with my team? What are they saying that we can respond to? What do we want to keep? Then taking the appropriate action to make those changes together and co-create a better work environment that, again, optimizes people discretionary effort. It's so much fun to watch the harvest a year later. You get to harvest the results. Like, I know that's something we don't get to see. We hear about it. But, you know, there's, there's a couple of people in my head that really jump into my mind where they really made it a priority. They didn't discount it. They didn't shove it under the, under the rug and go, well, you know, engagement surveys, culture surveys, you know, what can I do about that? They leaned into it. They made tremendous progress and the results show in performance and in sort of this esprit de corps of the group. Have you, do you see that too? Cause we see it from the outside. It's, it's probably our favorite case study. Oh, um, well, yeah, I mean, you, you've seen it and you've actually worked with some of the, some of the, the, the teams in terms of their their action plans and how they want to take the data and translate that into um, some positive steps forward. So, no, we definitely see it, and the um, the 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 impact on the results. I think the impact on, like you say, the discretionary um, um, impact that, uh, that that the employees have um, really shines through, and you can tell. Um, you know, because I get a chance obviously to visit teams everywhere and and see where they're at. And you can tell the the leaders that have been uh, placing a larger emphasis or a bigger emphasis on um, not just the business results itself, but investing in how to make the culture work better so that those results can be unlocked even further. You can feel it in the room and you can feel it in the dynamics of the team. Um, and that obviously shows up in, in many cases with better results too, but um, it's clearly there. And I'm really grateful for um like I say, the opportunity overall, but I think the the opportunity to take time and 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 and, and really dive into it and understand it and 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 working with people that care and that that, that, that that really don't again take it for granted. I don't take it for granted. These people don't take it for granted and and invest in that because I think the results are amazing, but it also makes it a really fun place to work. And you know, we've talked about this a lot. You always talk about your two thousand hours. That's that's a majority of your waking life is spent working on things you do with your job and you want to ultimately be doing it in a place where a you have an impact you believe in the mission but you're also working with people that that also care and that are energized by what you're doing and that just makes it makes it fantastic and it's really energizing for me as a leader yeah it's funny your ears must have been burning a little bit just before the holidays because i had a, a new client reach out to me and they'd heard a few stories maybe they'd heard a couple things on the podcast series and they reached out and said, you know, we're really starting to think about does our culture, is it living up to the to potential of what we've got here as a technology? And they described their technology to me and how excited they were about it. And I said, well, let's, you know, let's talk about whether it matters or not. I said, uh, think about, and her name was Kathy. I said, Kathy, just for yourself, 
if you compared your discretionary effort and the difference between when you reported to someone who you didn't respect and like and was maybe even a little toxic, very difficult to work with, and then your own discretionary effort and contribution to the business when you worked in a very positive environment, what would you say is the difference between the two? Is it 5%, 10% different? She laughed. She said, oh, I had those bosses almost back to back, like they were within months of each other. And luckily I had the bad one first and the good one second, because it, it was, it was within months. I could see how much more I, I got a chance to bring myself to the office because it got so bad that I had one foot out the door and I was doing just enough to keep my job. And then six months later, she said, I said to my husband, it's the same job. I'm the same person, but I would run through the wall for this new boss and the team Mm -hmm. that he has now put around me. And she said, the funny thing was, Rob, that's not that long ago. And I said, well, Kathy, the great thing now that you're VP of HR is that now you can create that same outcome for hundreds of people. And if we just do a, a baseline measurement, you know, we're probably going to find a little bit of a bell curve, right? Some people who are naturally really good at this and probably have culture scores on the 100-point scale that are in the 70 80% range that are getting a lot of discretionary effort. And you might have some folks on the other end of the scale. And you have to ask yourself, what are the differences in their leadership capabilities, their style, and how much more productivity are you getting out of a team with an 80% culture score versus a team with a 20% culture score? It's not a small difference. It's an enormous difference. And she agreed. We, we just laughed about it just on simple math. And she said, yeah, that's a very convincing argument. And I said, yeah, well, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm now working with clients. I thought of you and a couple others that you know, you've consistently made this a part of your brand as a leader, paying attention not only to strategy and the, the impact good strategy and tactics and implementation can have, but you really paid attention, for, you know, from Genentech 10 years ago all the way now through the first few years at Kite to realizing how mathematically important it is to hold people accountable to creating great environments to work in. Um, it, it not only frees up the discretionary effort, but I'm sure you've started to see the impact on what does the customer experience like your oncologists, their staff, do they notice a difference between, you know, the, the, the people who represent Kite and the people who come through their offices representing other oncology companies? And I would think based on the results that you have seen within your commercial team, particularly U- U.S., Europe and other parts that that has to be something that you're pleased with. Would, would that be accurate? That are, are you starting to see some positive differentiation through the eyes of the customer? Yeah, actually, and you've talked about this before, and um, maybe when we're planning out our, um, you know, uh, culture strategy here for 2024, we could dive into it even, even further. But we do know that the customer response and how Kite shows up um, Again, not just from the commercial organization, but as a whole company um, and the services that we have, but also the people and how we show up um, consistently get ranked um, very high or at the highest uh, versus not just other CAR-T companies, but other oncology companies as well. And I think to your point, it, it is a it is a factor where the, the culture starts to it can't help itself. It, 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 it sort of just continues to expand and um, um impacts the interactions that 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 our team is having with this, the customers and the stakeholders which is ultimately the most important thing so i know we've seen that in some of the data we haven't made a connection back to the scores and the work that you've done 
but that's been something we could tackle moving forward because I think there's something there. And I think that's another motivator for, you know, why are we doing this in the first place or why is this important to your question that some people might ask? Well, ultimately, I think it has a positive impact on the customers and I think will have a positive impact on patients as well. And I think it's extremely important. And, you know, I spent five years of my life in a practice management role in the U.S. And I was embedded in uh, KOL practices, I would say, four days a week on average for almost five years. So I had my 10,000 hours, at least, of seeing the industry come into these KOL offices. And I got to see it through such a unusual lens. I mean, most people in our industry only get to see a very small slice. You know, if we go on co-travels with MSLs or reps, we get a little bit of a taste of it. But I was in those offices sometimes from nine in the morning till six at night and then out for dinner with the physician, the staff to unpack all the things that we were working on from a practice management perspective. But I would see daily two or three or four industry people come through the door and spend time with the physician and his or her staff and oftentimes they let me observe and I really enjoyed it because it was a, it was a kind of a nice cherry on top of the cake, if you will, of the benefit that I was deriving from the job. I mean, obviously being able to help physicians on the business side of the practice, especially during that era of managed care, when it came into the U S was very uh, fulfilling work, but to be able to get also a benefit of watching the industry come through the door and being able to contrast why were some able to gain such a amount of traction with the physician and his or her staff such that they were invaluable? Like they, they were almost part of the practice and why most of the others were discounted as being, you know, almost like a necessary burden. Well, we've got to see industries so and we got to give them their 15 minute visit. There was always one or two though, that stood out and created such a different experience. And I remember one in particular, I've talked about another podcast episode that we had with Jay Newman, but, he had a rep working in Pittsburgh. Her name was Bernie, who got the ultimate compliment from one of her KOLs. He said to me, you know, Bernie thinks she works for me. And I said, I guess that's the biggest compliment you can give her. He goes, yeah, she gets up in the morning, her feet hit the ground. I swear to God, she's worried about me. I know she worries about other clients, but she's not thinking about what's right for her company and all the things that she's supposed to do to get, you know, hit her scorecard. She really worries, up, gets up in the morning and worries, what can I do to help? you know, Dr. M or Dr. C or all the other people she felt were part of her responsibility. And you could see that, Warner. You could see it in terms of the way the MSLs, the reps, the key account managers, the reimbursement specialists came into the offices and, and sort of weighed through those offices. If they were there in sort of a with servant leadership mindset of how can we bring value to the practice? How can we help them overcome the issues here? Then they invariably create a relationship where it ended up being a win-win. And mm. you could see it. You could see it in the behavior of the physicians. Like, let's face it, maybe not in CAR T, but in most other categories, the technology has some direct competition, right? If you think about, say, dermatology or ophthalmology or most of the other specialties, there, there's more than one glaucoma medication that works as you know works to 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 move the patient forward on the journey. So, how does the physician make the buying decision? Well, they're not going to tell the industry that. Honestly, maybe this is even subconsciously. You look at their scripts. It's not evenly distributed across the five or six companies that come in based on science, as, as it would be mathematically. 90% of the prescriptions go to the company that brings value to the practice. And they don't even know this. Like I would do chart polls with physicians, and this would come up as part of the conversation. 
And they were always surprised by it. They would say, well, I kind of probably have a, an even spread of my prescriptions across the different products that are available in glaucoma. No, you don't. In every practice, the, the, the organization that brought them the most value was getting 90% of the scripts in their first line position. Then there was sort of the second line where if they were, you know, if they weren't available, there was some strange reason for it. Number two might have got eight or nine percent of the scripts. And then there was a odd script that went here and there, but it was very skewed. And I remember sitting down with some of the KOs and going, help me understand this. Do you know this is what your data looks like in every single category in your practice, whether it's surgical, therapeutic? And they said, well, you know, I suppose I get into a habit. And what probably starts my habit is I got I have a great relationship with the people who come and represent that technology in my practice. It's as good or better than my other options. And that's just becomes sort of my go-to. And so I think that that's something that our industry, I'm sure it's the same for every industry. And I know it is because we, we support other sectors, but every consumer becomes sort of a habit of thinking, right? Like I go to Starbucks, it's a habit. Well, why do I, when I was living north of Toronto, there was a Starbucks down the street that was on the right side of the road, would be easy for me to turn into their parking lot. And I didn't, I went across the street, across three lanes of traffic to go to the other one because I liked the experience better. And I habitually would do that. And my, Christine would look at me and go, why are we going to this Starbucks every time? I go, because I like the way they treat me. And I think it's the same thing that we underestimate the power of, I'll call, I think I'll call it corporate branding or culture if you look at it from the inside. But if you give people a very supportive environment, like that manager at Starbucks did for her people, she hired special needs kids. She hired kids who were LGBTQ and were picked on and bullied in school. She invested in her community. She was first person from the Rotary Club to put her hand up to help out on projects. She really had a heart of gold. And it showed up in the way that she treated her people. And then it showed up the way that her people treated the customer. I think that's what the ultimate payoff is to your investment in culture as a leader over the past 13, 14 years. I, I think that it's showing up in front of the customer and it probably does a better job of explaining why Kite continues to show leadership and what is becoming a more competitive space. Your people are thriving in the environment that you and the rest of your leaders are paying attention to. It matters. So I don't know if you agree with that, but I think we're starting to see it in your data and other data that we're tracking longitudinally. It's clear. Yeah. And I think the, like I said, I think that's ultimately where you start to see these investments in, 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 in culture and the time it takes and, and, and the work behind it start to pay off, which is great. I loved your example about Bernie. Um, and I can, I can only imagine that the, the great customer focus that she has and great customer experience that they're creating buying her is probably an amazing manager that's also looking out for her and creating a yep. lot of positive dynamics. And then if you, to your point, if you see that consistently being replicated in other parts of the company, then obviously there's something bigger happening, which comes back to great leadership overall. But I think a great culture that, 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 that clears the way creates focus and allows people to be their best, bring their whole selves to work to the point you brought up earlier. Um, and really, you know, get engaged with and move forward with the things that they wanted to come to work for in the first place, which I think for most of us in this industry is about like helping customers and helping patients. And um, if you can find a way to make it that simple, then I think you can have an advantage and support your team through through a lot of challenges, a lot of changes, but bring them through and and 
to your point, it's not just about maintaining leadership. It's about having a real positive impact in a meaningful way for, 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 for patients. Well, and there's a lot that I'm, I'm, I, I know I've heard from your people over the three or four years we've worked together here at Kite. There's a lot there, right? There's a lot of, uh, they can get their hands in a lot of dough when it comes to helping the oncology centers uh, be able to leverage the technology that you're bringing them. It's not as simple as, well, that's what we've always done. It's a new brand. You know, it's a better mousetrap. No, it's it's a completely different idea. So there must have been a lot of opportunity and challenge for your customer-facing uh, employees who were engaged or are engaged with those oncology centers to help them go through this very significant shift in the way they were practicing oncology in these disease states in order to get the most from the potential of CAR T. So can you shed some light on that, Warner? What have you what have your best people done to help the customer? Well, I mean, it starts with I think the focus you brought up a couple minutes ago is not thinking about uh, uh, about it from Kite's perspective, but ultimately thinking about it from from their perspective and understanding the real dynamics in, in 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 the practice and understanding where the roadblocks that they have and we have certain standards of course there's you know to get technology like this approved there's there's a there's a lot of complexity in the fda's fda in the us and and other regulatory agencies around the world have held us to a, a pretty high standard in terms of all the different systems and support support programs and training and staff and everything that needs to be put in place in order for um, these therapies to even be administered, let alone be administered for, for thousands of patients. So you need to have that basic um, um, basic systems in place. And a lot of times to authorize a, a, a treatment center or authorize a, a, we call them authorized treatment centers, to get one up and running takes us anywhere from six months to, to even longer to get through that entire process. So our teams, not just the sales reps themselves, but the pods, as I said, these cross-functional teams, are integrally involved right from the very beginning, getting them authorized, getting the teams ready, doing test runs, all the training that needs to happen, making sure that the systems in the back end are, are, are matching up with what we've got on the kite side. So we're not um, mixing things up and that we're going to be able to deliver this effectively and consistently, like I said, time and time again. And so through that, you create a lot of, um, you create a lot of positive relationships because you're helping customers solve, solve, problems and and logistical challenges and um and issues with getting these the 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 center set up and i think it naturally builds a, a really strong relationship with them that you can then um transcend into how do you then start treating patients and identifying patients that could benefit from these therapies and ensuring they're up to up to date on the latest science because it continues to evolve and um new data coming through about um not only the longitudinal nature of the data that we're having but earlier lines of therapy like i said um new indications other uh, other indications where um, these patients can benefit and being able to communicate that in a way that you can start to um build and help more patients but it but it starts from you know that um that relationship and that trust and knowing that um not just the customer facing field teams themselves but the entire companies behind it and we're reliable and that we built this um, um fantastic engine 
um, that can deliver these therapies consistently, like I said, time and time again for patients. Um, and I think um, that work starts from, like we've been talking about, from not only hiring great people, but creating the right culture and the right vision um, so that people can thrive and continue to continue to improve on what we're doing so we can help our patients. Well, and I'd like to spend just a minute on that before we wrap up. And that's now that you've been there three years and recognizing that your job isn't just what we normally think of in our life science sector as head of commercial. The definition of your job is really not the same as the reality on the day-to-day. The day-to-day, you you almost sound to me like a CEO. Like when you think about the CEOs I deal with in other companies, life science or otherwise, they have to understand the full spectrum in order to optimize their value proposition. Well, that's exactly what you have to do in your job. And I'm sure that's one of the first things that you felt about this role is that, boy, it really was calling on you to take a, a broader view, to be arm in arm with tech ops, with meta fairs, with legal, with compliance. Like, man, if you weren't good at that stuff, you weren't good at seeing the bigger picture, you weren't going to last very long. And I know you've enjoyed it, but it also gives you a unique perspective, Warner, when I think about who, who now that you've seen so many employees in so many departments, even beyond commercial, who are the kinds of people that thrive at Kite versus the people that don't? Like what would be the top two or three things you would hope that your hiring managers are paying attention to when it comes to the word fit? Yeah, I mean, we've touched on some of them already, Rob. I mean, first of all, this sense of curiosity and um, and and passion for the patients need to be there. We, we, we talk about self-therapy, uh, CAR-T therapy is a team sport. So this natural collaboration and being able to work in, uh, across different functions and pull people together in order to solve complex problems and help more patients, that needs to be there. The, 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 the real surprise that I've had um, since joining the organization, we've had tremendous success. We're now leaders in this space and we've had some fantastic launches and, and, and and like I said, not just here in the U.S., but uh, now in over 25 countries around the world, which has been fantastic. But the biggest surprise for me is that as transformative as these therapies are, the the impact on patients is still relatively small. We're treating roughly two out of 10 patients that could benefit from cell therapy here in the U.S. And maybe roughly three out of 10 patients in Europe that could benefit. And what gets us excited every day is you talk about what, what we're looking for and we're hiring people we're looking for people that aren't satisfied with that um, and that are passionate about how can we do more in order to, to impact that. And to me, that is not just a kite specific issue. It means myself, but um, um, people that I work with in the leadership team, but, 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 but others around the organization as well, thinking about how can we play a leadership role, not just within the CAR-T space itself, but more broadly within the healthcare system to make the changes and support the changes that are going to be needed so that more patients can get identified, more patients can get referred. We can, can we put these authorized treatment centers closer to patients so they don't have to travel as far in order to get their therapy? Uh, can we continue to build the value uh, proposition argument so that we can continue to expand market access um, so that we can get reimbursement in countries like Canada and countries around the world as well? Um, you think with a therapy that has the potential to cure patients, you think this would all happen automatically, but it doesn't. And I think um, the kind of people that we need to hire have the sense of responsibility. I think that we, 
that we're not just leaders to be leaders. We're leaders here to um, evolve this space and have an impact bigger than ourselves in this in this healthcare in this healthcare industry. And I think we're on the verge of doing that. I feel like cell therapy is on the on on the tipping point. Like I said, we've treated now over sixteen thousand patients at Kite, but we've got plans to treat thousands more and accelerate that. But that's going to take you know not just an incredible amount of work. Like I said here within Kite, but it's 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 a it, it's a cross-functional and cross-industry work that we're going to be doing to implant and expand um, CAR-T therapy more broadly, which is going to be an exciting challenge for all of us. Yeah, and boy, the word that jumped into my head as you were describing all that was something that one of your young leaders said to me just before the holidays, that he's really enjoyed watching himself and his team ramp up their sense of ownership, was the word he used. Mm. And, uh, and Byron was his name. He just... It really, because I asked him, you know, what have you learned over the past year? And why have your results improved as much as they had? And I, he said, in word, ownership. Like we're from top to bottom in my team, I can see people not just staying in their swim lane, but really feeling like we got to work together to keep pushing the boundaries. And he said, it's this sort of entrepreneurial spirit that has been tapped into uh, together as they worked worked on this. And I wrote down the word ownership when he said that, and I'm hearing you say it too. So. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a good a good word to end that part of our conversation on. What we usually do with our guests, two Warners, in the last few minutes, we always open it up on any topic you want to talk about that we haven't had a chance to touch on. Is there anything that you've been thinking about you wanted to kind of share with me and the audience? Oh, well, I mean, I'm curious as well from your side, and maybe this is a question back to you, as to how you've seen your company evolve as the industries evolved. I think you brought up a lot of points and I'm looking at it a lot of times through the kite lens only, but I'm really curious as to how you've seen your bar probably raise and, and go up given the evolution of the space. Cause it's not getting any easier. And we talk about CAR T therapy, but pharma and biotech in general is just getting more complicated and the bar is getting higher for all of us. So you must be responding in a way and seeing that not only with the the culture survey work that you do, but more importantly with the leadership development work that you're doing. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's funny because our team had just talked about this uh, before the holidays. We always try to reflect on you know, some of the trends that we're seeing. And one of the things that we had a nice, uh, enjoyed a nice conversation around was the impact that we see post COVID of, remember we called it the great resignation there were some 30 percent of most sectors that went through turnover well it was the same in life science so you had all this turbulence in 2021 22 and lots of people ended up in new gigs they had a chance to think about maybe where they were and what they wanted and i think we've been asked to now support folks who've by this by the strangest of circumstances because covid was this thing we all had to live through together but had a chance to maybe stop for a minute and think am i where i want to be is this the environment i want to be in is this the right fit do i feel fulfilled am i making an impact i think we've seen a lot of energy around those questions more so than ever before you know daniel pink talks about this he's been talking about it for a long time you know what motivates the new generation of leaders around a sense of purpose, a sense of mastering their craft, you know, and a sense of being able to have an impact. And it's, I think those things have really 
become much more front and center. I think they're much more part of the vernacular of the millennials that are now coming into leadership roles. And as the boomers exit senior leadership and as the Gen Xers like yourself and others move into those roles, I think that's something we all have to keep our eye on is this generation, God love them for it. It's generational. It's also circumstantial around COVID really has created an expectation for themselves and the people that are around them that if I'm going to come to work, like you said before, and spend, I don't know, 2000 hours a year, you know, plodding away at my widgets, I want it to be meaningful. I want to have an impact. I want it to be fulfilling. I want to know that I'm sharpening my saw and mastering my craft. I want to have a sense of purpose. And it's not an afterthought anymore. It's not something you only talk about once or twice a year. It's embedded in the mindset and the behavior. So it puts positive pressure on organizations like Kite and leaders like yourself, but it also puts pressure on us that if we're going to navigate people and live up to the promise of our name, I mean, we pick Thrive for a reason. We want people to thrive at work. The fundamentals are a given, like basic 101 management skills, of course. But now leaders who take this seriously and want to take on more responsibility and take on the burden of leading people, leading strategy, leading culture, they, it's, a, it's a higher bar. It's a different ask. And so we have to be able to respond to that. And so we've had to up our game. We have to be even stronger at picking up on that energy from the people that report into our leaders and help them be aware of it and help them respond more quickly to it. So I think that's probably been the biggest adjustment we've seen post COVID and we're trying to, we're having a lot of fun with it, but it's pushing our offering, our service offering. It's pushing each of us to continue to sharpen our saw. And, you know, I'm as engaged now. It's funny because my family said to me in the holidays, you know, dad, you've been at this for 20 years. It's great that you're doing this podcast series, but when are you going to retire? And I thought, retire, why would I retire? I'm getting a chance to work with extremely bright people from a number of different sectors from every age group, from every culture you can imagine. And these are people, we don't get pulled into companies that don't give a crap. We're getting pulled into companies that want to do better. And they're already doing pretty well in most cases, right? So we're going, we're getting to engage with folks who are trying to go from good to great or from great to awesome. You know, so we're not having to get into the routine, the sort of commodity stuff. We're at, it's really kind of cool work. I get to spend 80% of my time with people like you. I mean, like, look at you went from Saskatchewan at 18 years old, not, you know, worrying about where your next Budweiser was coming from or Labatt, I guess, to, you know, you're practically the CEO of a company that's reinvented uh, oncology therapy in some cases. Like, wow, what a journey. Um, it's, it's incredible, right? So we have to be able to keep up with that. And it, it really pushes our buttons, but I'm as engaged now and our team is as engaged now as it's ever been. I think it's probably at the highest it's ever been. And it, it keeps it fun and it keeps us young, I suppose, if you want to look at it that way. Wow. That's great. I mean, it is a blessing on, 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 on all sides to your point. And um, yeah, it's a real pleasure to, to interact and be able to have a, a sounding board with, with people on your team that, um, that can help us sharpen our saws and keep getting better as leaders. So. I really feel fortunate. Well, listen, I, I can't thank you enough for carving out time and you and I dealing with the time zone difference between Southern California and Lake Ontario, but it's always a pleasure. And we really enjoyed catching up with you, Warner. Thanks for all that you do too. And uh, I know that you're a global thinker, but I have to say as a Canadian, it's 
yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of you because um, you're a reference point for a lot of folks on this side of the border when they, you know, come to me and say, well, what could my career path look like? And I think of, you know, people like you, men and women like you, who have flourished beyond the Canadian borders and are truly making an impact globally. And uh, just want to say congratulations, but also thanks, because it's, it's, I know I've sent a few people to talk to for mentorship, and they just, they really appreciate it. And I just want to tell you how much that's affected folks up here to see someone flourish the way you have over the past 30 years or so. No, well, thank you. Um, um, honor, actually, pleasure. And uh, like I said, we got we got more work to do. So I'm looking forward to working with you and um, and um, making an even bigger impact, I think, in these years to come. So so thanks for everything you're doing, too. You're welcome. We'll talk soon. You bet. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Take care, man. Take care, Warner. Bye.